listening to the Dr. Claude Kirshner Show. My name is Dr. Claude Kirshner, and we are here to serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. I hope you enjoy the content. If you have any questions or would like some additional resources, please visit our website at www.archconsults.com. Enjoy. So they say, hey, this is how much it costs us. Let's upcharge it 30% and let's charge this to the customer. Very basic, very rudimentary, fundamentally wrong in a sense of not taking into consideration value, not taking into consideration different market segments and not using price in a creative way that it should be used. We are going to talk about some essentials to entrepreneurship and the subject of revenue models and pricing, which is fun because a lot of people or most people have experience with paying for things. We're all consumers in some sense. And pricing can be an interesting conversation. And I think it's had often around dinner tables, uh, malls, and certainly between spouses and um, out at restaurants is what should things be priced at? Why are they priced accordingly? We all have an opinion. We all have a perception of value. So we're going to start off by talking about our revenue model. It's a great platform or foundation to go into the pricing conversation. One example that I think is easy to visualize is a bowling alley. And the question is, in a bowling alley, where does the revenue come from in a bowling alley? How does a bowling alley make money? And what, what are the sources? What are the roles of each of those different revenues in the overall operating plan and operating model of the bowling alley? So so think about it and think about if you're going bowling, uh, what are you paying for? So the three most common sources of revenue or revenue drivers in a bowling alley are the games, the shoe rentals, and the snack bar or the food. Some bowling alleys also have arcades and pool tables and whatnot, but let's keep it simple. Let's talk about the games, the shoe rental, and the snack bar. So now that we have and understand our sources of revenue, the question is, what are the roles of each of those different sources and, and why is that important? That just kind of leads into the reality of each one of those different revenues has its own purpose in the overall operating model and revenue model of the bowling alley. So for instance, the question is, which one of those makes the most money for the bowling alley? It's not the games. It's not the shoe rental. It's the food. In the food, likely there's a disproportionate amount of money that comes or source of revenue from the food than from the games and from the shoes. The shoes probably make a little bit, probably a marginal return. And in some cases, if potentially not in all cases, considering the, the footprint of a bowling alley, uh, the games actually lose money. The cost of having to keep the games running, maintain the lanes, have the real estate, the games are a cost loser. Therefore, what would we do if we knew then from a revenue model perspective that the games are losing us money, the shoes are making us a marginal amount of money, but the food is really where the money comes from in our operating model or in our revenue model, what should we do and why? And the answer really is we should try to, and if you can envision yourself the last time you went to a bowling alley, try to have the games or the lanes occupied with leagues or with certain players or with events. So when patrons come in or guests come into the bowling alley, you're forcing them to wait for their lanes. And when they're waiting for their lanes, they're drinking and eating at the snack bar. And you'll see now a lot of bowling alleys are really designed around the food 
and the drinks and the community element of that kind of togetherness as opposed to the bowling. The bowling is really a side element and it's because of the revenue model and therefore the bowling alleys are really designed more to cater towards the food and drink experience more so than the bowling. Bowling is just a draw to get people in, but where the money comes from in a bowling alley, the disproportionate amount of money uh, and the sources of revenue come from the food and the drinks. So think about that the next time you go to a bowling alley. And that kind of leads us into this concept called a contribution margin income statement. So this example is an example of a fairly straightforward commodity-driven business of landscape maintenance, cleaning, cleaning and painting, micro-cleaning, and graffiti removal. This is one company that does four different services. Again, landscaping, cleaning and painting is one service, and micro-cleaning is another service, a third, and graffiti removal is the fourth. And if you break down each of these different sources of revenue or revenue drivers by taking away the variable costs, so you have the sales minus the variable costs, which are the direct costs proportionate to the volume of sales that are only there because you're selling that particular revenue driver. And then you have your variable contribution, and then you have your direct fixed costs, which are the costs that are fixed uh, they don't change, but they're really only there because of the revenue driver. Then you get your profit contribution of each one of those different revenues. So the point is not to complicate the reality of the accounting purposes, but the point is to see how each one of these costs varies depending on the revenue driver and what it means to have these costs vary. In this particular example, you can see that sales-wise, the most sales comes from cleaning and painting. But disproportionately, a large amount of the profit or the return on sales comes from the microcleaning, which the cleaning and painting is $120,000 in sales. And the microcleaning is $35,000. But the variable cost and the direct fixed cost from the microcleaning are significantly lower than the cleaning and painting direct cost and fixed cost. And the profit contribution from cleaning and painting, even though it has $120,000 in sales, is $15,000. Versus the microcleaning has $35,000 sales, but has more profit contribution than the cleaning and painting. So it doesn't mean they shouldn't do the cleaning and painting. It just means understanding how we utilize these different revenue drivers differently and strategically to formulate the plan for our business or how we execute and serve our customers utilizing these different revenue drivers differently with different proportionate amount of cost. A relevant example is you know, we, we were in the pool cleaning industry and, and still in for quite some time, and we would clean customers' pools. We would celebrate in picking up accounts, even though sometimes the accounts were priced a little bit more competitively for the basic cleaning services. But we knew that if we picked up this account for cleaning this particular pool, that we were going to get a decent, a good amount, if not a lot, of mechanical repair elements because the account needed new filters, new pumps, new heaters, and likely a renovation within the next two years. So we would make a marginal return on the cleaning services, but we would make much more of a, a profit contribution on the replacement of motors, heaters, pumps, that kind of stuff, and certainly the renovations, which would justify us picking up those accounts at a little bit of a cheaper price. And just offering different services to customers based on that understanding. So moving away from revenue models, revenue drivers, and understanding that as a foundation for pricing, let's get into, or at least talk about pricing. And pricing is so much fun to talk about. What's so fun about it is it's so creative. 
It's one of the most flexible tools available to any manager, any leader, any entrepreneur when it comes to executing on businesses is pricing. It's pricing is not just one decision. It's a multitude of different decisions, depending on the market segment, depending on the season, depending on the strategy. And it's a lot of fun because of the creative nature of pricing. And pricing is more than just cost. And this is a, a fundamental error that I see made often with leaders, managers, operators, and certainly entrepreneurs is they believe that their cost is a primary decision in how they're going to price their product. And we'll talk a little bit later about how value is much more important to price something than cost, certainly perceived value. But price is a statement of value. Price is a statement of value. What is price? Price is a number assigned to value. Therefore, price is a statement of value. It's saying this is how much it costs for this amount of value. It's really important that we think about value when we're talking about pricing. And price is about creativity. It's all about creativity. So one of the incorrect ways that people do pricing, although they're forced into it, and it's certainly understandable, but it's, it's done often, is looking at this cost plus formula, which is extremely limited. It's figure out what is my cost per unit, which is at times arbitrary because our cost per unit uh, really has a has a variable cost component, but it also has a fixed cost component as well. If I asked you, what is your cost per unit? And you assign me a number, it's likely going to be your variable cost per unit, but it doesn't include business insurance. It doesn't include administrative salaries. It doesn't include your software usage. Uh, it doesn't include the use of facilities or a potential lease. And to assign all of those fixed costs to a particular unit, it's it's an arbitrary process. So they figure out their cost per unit, they add a margin or a markup, and there's your price. So they say, hey, this is how much it costs us. Let's upcharge it 30% and let's charge this to the customer. Very basic, very rudimentary, fundamentally wrong in a sense of not taking into consideration value, not taking into consideration different market segments and not using price in a creative way that it should be used. How are prices used? What's the difference between when people buy products based on something we call value in exchange versus value in use? Let's talk about value in exchange first. And this is something I think everyone can understand. When you think about value in exchange, it's, it's fundamentally based on supply and demand needs, supply and demand metrics. And our society and our economy is based on these fundamental aspects of supply and demand. So how many sellers are there that are willing to buy or willing to sell and how many buyers out there that are willing to buy and able to buy? That's the, the value in exchange. And some examples are if you look at the cost of generators during or after a major hurricane, uh, certainly right before a hurricane comes, the, the generators start flying off the shelves. Therefore, the cost of generators increases. And if you saw a guy in the back of a pickup truck after a hurricane with four generators and he's looking to sell them to the people that have needs for them, how much is he charging? And, and why is he charging that price? Forget about the legality of, of that or scalping or whatever you want to call it, but we're taking advantage of consumers. But the truth is there are no generators out there to buy. And this man has a truck and he's bringing a generator to your house. You would pay a large amount more for that generator simply because the, you don't have the availability to buy that um, is not high. And certainly your willingness, low availability, low supply, and your demand for it, your need for it is really high. So you, you're able and willing to buy this. And that's just value in exchange. Another example would be, I mean, a funny one is, you know, if you look at a best-selling book like From Good to Great, which has changed many businesses and probably created millions and million, millions of dollars in value 
uh, for people who've read this book and applied some of the principles, um, it costs $12.99 for this book. And you look at a high-end gourmet cheese block, it costs the same price. And the, the, the truth is the books are printed and, and mass printed and available to everyone. And, and the cheese is a little bit more limited as to how much it can make and the demand it can make. And it's certainly putting a, a different value on the cheese. But those two things are priced the same. What does that tell you? Or what does it tell you if, a, if the block of cheese is priced more than the book? It says the, the cheese is worth more than the book. The value we place on the cheese is more than the value we place on that book. That's value in exchange. So now let's look at what is what I'm recommending uh, that we use more often is the concept of value in use. And value in use is, is a lot better uh, than value in exchange for a multitude of reasons. Some examples uh, of value in use is, is really trying to understand how do business owners and how do entrepreneurs segment their market and look at different consumers differently. For instance, if you are a consumer that is driving down the turnpike with their family after a long, long drive, and you see a, a sign off Interstate 95 for a hotel, you pull over, you just want a hotel. You want to sleep in bed that night. You're not going to shop around for a, a large amount of hotels. So that hotel, that room is worth more to you. It's more valuable to you than it would be for somebody um, planning a vacation and uh, looking for a good hotel to stay in because it's relevant to you. Another example would be uh, the cost of a cup of coffee at Starbucks. And the, you know, it's very difficult for me to go to Starbucks and buy a cup of coffee when I can make a cappuccino at my house for the cost of one of those little, uh, what do they call them, pods. And, and the, the truth is a lot of people will pay the value at Starbucks because they are perceived understanding of that value. The value in use at Starbucks is $4. They like the experience. They like the the taste of the coffee, even though it could be, argument could be made that my cup of coffee at home is just as good, if not better, but they have created and segmented a market where that market is willing to pay that value in use to them for a $4 cup of coffee from Starbucks is more. So they base their pricing off of needs, wants and preferences, awareness of substitutes or options, income levels and wealth. Who are the type of people that regularly go to Starbucks and buy coffee. It, it's not the people that are living paycheck to paycheck and needing to save money in order to make rent. They're, they're choosing not to go to Starbucks because that's not for them. But Starbucks isn't catering to them. Starbucks is catering to a, a wealthier crowd, coffee lovers, and people that enjoy the experience and, and potentially have more discretionary income. So value and use versus value and insurance. Value has two underlying sources. So pricing is a strategic approach. And this is a great depiction of the different things we can do with pricing along this continuum, the price objective. What is the price objective? We look at, for instance, big pens. Big pens is saying their objective is that pens are usually the same and it can be used for a basic purpose of writing on a piece of paper. So how much does one big pen cost versus Mont Blanc pens, which cost considerably more? What is that saying about their objectives? I mean, the objective of Mont Blanc is not to sell multiple pens to everybody. It's to sell a, an experience, a beautiful pen made with the most exquisite materials that writes in the best way to authors or literary people or professors or people that write often doctors, whomever it may be that would purchase those pens where you can find a Mont Blanc pen for you know anywhere from $500 to $5,000. This particular image on the screen is a $5,000 pen. And that's their objective. They, they want to have a low volume, 
high margin product that's priced based on value and use and not based on mass marketing to everyone. And, and same thing with BIC. They have a different price objective. Price strategy, we'll talk more about uh, price structure, price levels, and price tactics can get really creative. Uh, one of the most important elements, which we've talked about, is, is value and use and demand and value. And one of the least important in this is cost. Uh, we have to consider our competition. We have to consider our marketing strategies. And something else to consider would be legal issues, which doesn't we don't tend to run into that often, but just for example, legal issues would be uh, things that would discourage competition or uh, could could be um, significantly price undercutting for market penetration that just seems to be uh, ridiculous and um, is not fostering a spirit of uh, economic development for a community. And th that would be a legal issue for an organization. So where to begin? So pricing markers, this is a depiction of a scale of where we're saying for a particular product, in this example, we say that our product at the very low end costs $75. At the very high end, people will pay $180. And two different things were notching on this continuum, on this line. Uh, so you have $75 at the lowest and $180 at the highest is one, we have to say, okay, what's our break-even point? Where are we going to, where do we have to price this thing just to be able to uh, break even on the product. And a lot of times, sometimes people price it below break even just to have certain market penetration based on strategy. Then you look at your competitors. You have how much are your competitors charging? Your competitor A, competitor B, competitor C, what are they charging for this particular product? And then after you take a look at your competitors, you look at your, your market, your market segments. What are they willing to pay? What do we believe they're willing to pay for this particular product? You have uh, segment A, which is a little bit lower of a cost segment. Maybe this is uh, stay-at-home moms that, um, you know, father's working and they are trying to watch the budget on groceries. And then you have segment B, which is a lot higher. Maybe this is a dual income family that uh, doesn't have a lot of time for, for shopping and they choose to buy, you know, meals that are pre-cooked and, and come to their house. And then you have uh, segment C, which would be your highest end segment. And what are they paying for this product? And what's the value for them? So this would be somebody with significantly more income that's possibly trying to make a fashion statement or a identity statement through buying something at a higher price because it's just the best product out there, which is uh, could be for that particular company costs the same amount as a different product offered, but because of the image, because of the brand um, and how they niched their pricing and their, their organization, they're capable of capturing a much higher price for their product. So certainly a uh, a good example of plotting your competition's pricing and then plotting your different segments and what they'd be willing to pay along this continuum. So now let's look at price objective. And the the example I have here with price objective, which was the first one on our strategy and pricing list, is the turkeys during Thanksgiving in grocery stores. So what is the objective of pricing turkeys or how much do turkeys cost at grocery stores during Thanksgiving? So the, the key element is what is what is their objective? And if their objective is to make money on the turkeys, then they're probably missing out on a lot of other income sources. So the the example alludes to the fact that a lot of times grocery stores will price their turkeys at a point where they will literally lose money on selling turkeys because the consumers will come in and buy all the fixings, uh, the gravy and the pans and the, the side helpings, as opposed to trying to price their turkeys high and make money on the turkey, just trying to bring people in a store with specials on cost of turkeys. And we know that when people go and buy turkeys, they're going to buy other things along with that turkey during Thanksgiving. 
So that is the objective of pricing a turkey in a particular way. So generate a certain level of volume or revenue, achieve a given level of profit or margin, create visibility, cover costs, convey a certain image or quality level like the Mont Blanc example, uh, be regarded as fair, pricing equivalent with your competition or going out to a customer and asking, hey, what, what are you charging? I'll match that price so that we can deliver your service and potentially try to make money on some additional upsells, uh, take advantage of cost reductions from volume so we can uh, sell a large amount for maybe a hundred turkeys are less than a singular turkey when you go to the store during Thanksgiving, if you're buying for an organization or for an event, uh, discourage market entry, uh, speed the exit of marginal competitors. So you, you could potentially strategically try to force a competitor out of that space by uh, blocking them out with some of your pricing tactics and strategies or your pricing objectives. Avoid government scrutiny. So moving from objectives now to price strategy, and this is a fun one because we're talking about penetration pricing, which would be pricing at a very low level, parity pricing, which would be pricing at the level in which customers perceive that to be, like a equally matching perception of what it should be and the price that you charge, and premium pricing, which is more than what customers would typically perceive for a particular reason. Uh, you've priced it at a premium because of what the value is that you consider to be offering there. So some examples, if you were walking into a, a college town or you went to a college town and say you went to a, a football game or something, you're an alumni of that school. And after that football game, you go with a couple of your alumni friends and you go to a local dive bar and you were to order some drinks at the dive bar. What do you think the price of a, a cost of beer would be at that dive bar? And that price, that perceived value, maybe two bucks, 75 cents, whatever that may be, would, would be typical for that place. So that same night, if you and your wife or you and your husband or you and your significant other went to a, a function at a five-star hotel and the five-star hotel has a beautiful lobby and you enter the lobby and you sit down at the bar and you order the same drink and the bartender says that will be $7, $8 or whatever it may be, you know, what's the, what, what does that example tell you? It's the same beer or the same drink, same exact ingredients, possibly sourced from the same provider, you know, in the same relative region. It's just a different perception that the consumer has on what they would pay based on where they are sitting. That's a big deal. And, and, you know, when you look at premium pricing and you look at penetration pricing, it has a lot to do with volume and margin. So if you were to take a look at that dive bars business model versus the a premium five-star hotels business model, you look at the dive bar and their, their, their pricing strategy and their model, their business model is probably based on high volume, low margin. So they're selling a lot of those beers and they're selling it at a, a lower price. When you look at the hotel lobby, the five-star hotel, they are charging a large amount for that singular beer, but they're selling a lot less. They, they could potentially be making the same amount of profitability, the same amount of money, they, two successful businesses, just using pricing tactics, pricing strategy differently. So another one would be if you, if you were on a date with a uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, or whatever that looks like, and after you're done dinner, you, you go out and you ask for uh, two scoops of ice cream, what would you expect to pay for those two scoops of ice cream? Some people might say $3. Some people might say $7. It depends on their perception of the, the value of that experience in that ice cream. 
So another a great example, which I use often, is the price of sewing needles. If you are in need, uh, significant need, and the next morning you have an important event and you just tore a hole in your blouse or tore a hole in your blazer, and that night you're shopping around at CVS or Walgreens for a package of sewing needles, what do you expect to pay? And when you answer that question, it shows light on what value you put on those particular sewing needles. It, it shows you that pricing is, assigning a price to something is a perception of value. So ease of differentiation, customer segments that are price inelastic. Inelastic means they're gonna pay that price uh, regardless of, they're gonna pay a higher price. The price of the product does not affect their decision. They're price inelastic. So as your pricing goes up, the amount of sales that you have, the volume of sales stays the same. It's inelastic. Elastic pricing is as your pricing goes up, the volume of your transaction goes down. So that's the value in exchange, supply and demand. As as supply comes down, price also price will go up. As supply goes up, price comes down. Current and anticipated competition is another consideration of price strategy. Cost reductions possible with volume, third-party payer. Uh, so this is an interesting example to talk through. If you have a business trip, and uh, airlines have really leveraged this for many years, um, they have a different pricing structure for business travelers versus personal travel. Two ways of traveling, traveling for business and traveling for, traveling for personal. The cost of business travel historically is more expensive. The question is why? You know, the, the, the reason why business travel is more expensive is because a corporation is typically paying for it and typically it's done during the week. So a lot of travel agents or, or travel sites, or let's just say uh, airlines, if you were willing to stay a Saturday night, your ticket could be considerably less. It could be $200 less. And, and then you say, well, why? How do they use that Saturday night variable into that equation for pricing? They can tell whether or not you're a business traveler or a personal traveler if you're willing to stay on a Saturday night. If you're on travel for business, the question on pricing is that I, I can stay a Saturday night and save my organization 200 bucks, or I could come home on Friday night and I can be with my family. You're, you're likely going to choose that your company pays more money. You're going to come home on Friday night and you're going to be with your family. If you were visiting your sister in uh, Arkansas, you, you might stay that extra Saturday night to save $200 because of, you know, it's a, it's a cheaper flight. You're, you're doing it for personal travel. So that's just an indication of um, those third-party payers, why that's important. And when we price certain things, how we can tell and segment those markets a little bit creatively. So always easier to lower price than to raise a price. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, price structure, where the real creativity happens. This is just an example of LinkedIn and how they, they use their structure to draw people in with a free service, sort of a freemium membership. And they want people to upgrade to career, business, sales, hiring memberships with some additional perks or different additional features that they have. So they rope you in with the free service, but then they want to upcharge you. That's just a, a fun strategy that they have. Um, and so how, how does a, a gym charge for their memberships? And this is where you can get creative with structure. And uh, most of you will, will probably say they charge monthly for monthly memberships. And the question is, does the gym get utilized all the time at the same level? Meaning at the, between five o'clock at night and eight o'clock at night, there's probably a, a mad rush during the week of visitors that come into that gym. So why can't that gym charge less for monthly membership for users that are willing just to use the pool? 
as a, as a example. So you just want to use the pool, your membership price is less. Or if you're a member that wants to come in between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. on the weekdays, you can come at a cheaper monthly fee than those who utilize the gym at peak service hours. This is where structure and creativity can start to be revealed in the way that you price things. Could you sell a cheaper membership for those not coming during the weekday? Uh, time and form of payment. Uh, form of payment is an interesting one. If you were to collect all the money up front for, say, an annual uh, service, uh, you may provide a discount for that, a 5% discount, 10% discount for cash flow purposes. That's a different price than what somebody would pay on a monthly basis. And that's the same concept. A type of customer. So a lot of times people think, where I've heard that you should always charge people the same, that uh, we should use cost as a variable. We should price our products based on cost. And we have to keep pricing the same because it gets it gets too complicated if we're pricing everybody differently. And I, I fundamentally disagree because I do believe that certain types of customers will pay differently than others. And I think you can be very creative with the way that you charge certain customers one price and you charge other customers another. And I dare you to ask the people on a plane as you're flying from one location to another and just ask the five closest people around you, how much did you pay for this ticket? What kind of answers do you think you're going to get? You'll likely get five different answers to that question. And nobody is, is having fisticuffs or upset or angry at one another for the fact that somebody paid less than the other person. They're content and they all pay different prices for the same service, for the same flight. And it, it's just fine. So that's my example for charging differently for different types of customers. So that's price structure. Some examples of playing with the price structure, bundling and unbundling products with services. If you have, uh, if you purchase a car, you may pay a premium for certain kinds of wheels, a certain kind of stereo system or whatever that looks like. You're there, you're with a car. It's an easy time to uh, bundle those, those products together and create a, a higher sale. Selling same product under different brand names at different prices. That's an interesting concept. If you are, say, a large private equity company and you own multiple different brands within a portfolio. You may be offering car wash services, but your one particular uh, segment of your business is on the West Coast and the people on the West Coast really love their, their cars. And they, they it's the same exact service, but you're because of the brand of that particular company, you're charging a much higher price than say people in, in the Northeast who don't get their car washed during wintertime. So that's completely permissible. A low base price and sell add-ons at high margin. So I'm trying to think of an example of this. So GoDaddy has a great, they, they have a great service where they offer websites. They will sell you a website for say $30 a month, which could be even less than that. But everybody who has a website also is interested in what? They're interested in website design services. They're interested in SEO marketing services. They're interested in a multitude of other services in, that coincides with their website, email services. So that's how GoDaddy is creative with playing with their price structure. Pricing differently at lower or high peak times. For instance, you look at the price of cars rented in Daytona Beach during, say, March versus the price of that same exact car in August or September. You're, you're going to pay $60 to $100 a day during March because of spring break in Daytona Beach versus in August or September, you're going to pay 20 bucks a day for that car rental. So that's just a seasonal pricing structure that they play with. Ultimately, use of products or services for a flat fee. So ultimately use, you can go to Golden Corral and you can get an all-you-can-eat buffet for a flat fee. It's just a creative way to, to use that. There's To bring up car washes again, there's certain car washes that you can pay a monthly rate and you can go there and use 
an unlimited amount of car washes. So how often do people actually have a chance to wash their car? Maybe once a month, twice a month. So they're capable of allowing you to use it all the time, charging you a monthly subscription fee, but typically people won't go back and use it as often as, as you think. Base price and then variable charges once a threshold is reached. For instance, like when I used HubSpot, they would charge a base price for access to the software, access to the marketing platform. And once I got a certain number of contacts in my HubSpot email list, they would charge based on a threshold of say every 5,000 additional contacts, your new monthly price is this. So you can keep on playing with this. Uh, different prices for different market segments. Loyalty schemes for past or heavy users. Price differences for users who can only buy or use at certain periods. Prices tied to customer characteristics such as size of their foot for shoes or size of their car for car washes. That's just a fun, creative way to do it. Uh, cash discounts, functional trade discounts. Uh, if you are a member of the local chamber of commerce, your ice cream cone is 25% off. Or if you're a student at Florida International University, then when you come here, you are a part of this particular group. Therefore, you can have a discount. Uh, time payment schemes, trade-in, trade-up schemes. This is a sort of ties into the psychology of pricing a little bit. And this goes to price levels. And we're starting to touch on price tactics. So if you look at a car, go to the car rental example. And when you go to a car rental place, you have a bunch of options. You have a full-size option, a mid-size option, compact option, and a subcompact option. So which option do you choose and why? And you know, one of the important things to understand in these different price levels is that look at the, the lowest price level of subcompact. It's $21 a day. And then you increase $4 to the next level of compact. But then when you go from compact to midsize, the increase is more than $4. The increase is actually $7. And then when you go from midsize to, to full size, the increase isn't $7. It's actually $11. And what does that tell you? And, and why do people do that with those tiered pricing models? You could think about it and maybe you haven't noticed it before, but this is the way it's done simply because of the psychology of pricing. The incremental increase in quality must also show a greater gap in the price increase. So as quality goes up, you also have to increase the, the pricing amount, that gap uh, from one, one tier to the next tier more because of an increased amount of quality. So that just kind of shows pricing levels and the psychology of pricing. And if you think about tactics, this is this can be a lot of fun. And we'll go back to the reality that, or the truth, that it is much easier to come down on pricing than it is to increase pricing. And one of the one of the tactics that people use are rebates, coupons, two-for-one deals, specials, et cetera. And we'll get into some more examples. But just to stay with tactics for a second, if you think about if you think about an organization, say Let's just look at Starbucks as an example again. If Starbucks cup of coffee is $4 for a cup of coffee, if they drop their price from $4 to $3.50, then now all the time they're charging $3.50 and they're, they're losing out on a lot of future revenue. But if they keep their cup of coffee at $4 and they literally give away $75 gift cards for people who come to their, their store often to buy more coffee and, and Vitamin Shop is really good at this too. Vitamin Shop has very high prices, but they're often using discounts, promotions. And there's certainly, every time I go there, I have this gold member status at Vitamin Club, which my wife laughs at me. But what they're doing is they are enticing me to come in, purchase $300 of supplements, which really isn't much. It's a case of Celsius, 
some protein powder and some gummy vitamins. And they are with, with that order, they're giving me a $20 discount. They didn't decrease their prices. They just simply are offering rebates. They're offering loyalty programs so that I keep coming back because I have this perception of I'm saving money. But in reality, they're pricing so high that these discounts are just simply marginal and they're just ways to think that the price is less than it actually is. So that's why using rebates uh, in certain months, temporary promotional coupons, a Starbucks example with keeping coffee at, at $4 and just giving away loyal customers $75 a month and just coupons or whatever that looks like. Uh, so that's what that's rebates and tactics and promotions. And that's why those are so very important. And they entice customers to purchase for the first three months. Here's what your price is going to be. And then after that, it, it literally doubles. But what they what they get you to hook you in is this particular discount for the first three months. And when you sign up at that discount, the perception is, oh, I'm going to pay this price. But the reality is over time, as you keep paying for that membership, they they now have you at the higher price. That's not them lowering their prices. That's them getting creative with some of the the tactics they're using to use their price as a creative variable for strategy. So some other guidelines, you do not want to compete solely on price. This is a mistake. It should never be done. It's, it's, a, it's a lose-lose battle. It's a never-ending battle. If you lower your price, uh, somebody else can just lower theirs. Uh, you want to compete and you want to price based on value. It is always harder to raise prices than to lower them talked about that. Find ways to lower the price without lowering the price. We talked about those tactics and rebates and promotional items. Not all customers need to pay the same for, for the same thing. And we talked about that as well with the examples of the airlines and getting on a plane and, and asking the five people around you, how much did you pay for this ticket? You're likely going to get five different answers. Personal travel versus business travel. And who cares? You know, If my company's paying for it, why am I going to stay a Saturday night I'm coming back on Friday, even though it's $200 more for a ticket, because I want to be with my family and my company's paying for it. Price is a, a signal, but value is what people buy. Error on the high side. Thank you so much. That is the conversation about revenue drivers, a revenue model for organizations, and then segueing into pricing and pricing strategies and tactics and why these things are important, not only for managers and leaders, but certainly for entrepreneurs as well. Thank you so much. God bless.